This morning, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. If you want to follow along with your Bible, we'll have a majority of the verses up here. But I always love you opening up your own Bible or turning on your own Bible once provided you in the seat. Uh, seat storage before you. What, I don't know what we'd call that, footstool, whatever it is. You're welcome to take it home if you don't have your own Bible. We are continuing our series entitled Dear Church, which is covering the seven letters to the church in Revelation. And this series is a good reminder that the king of the universe cares about what is happening in his church. And make no mistake, his, this is his church. Every church is his church. John tells us that he walks among the churches, that he is involved in his church, that he takes his churches very, very seriously, far more seriously than we do. And so we should take these letters very seriously because these letters are not just meant for the churches to which they were written. They're also meant for us, for you and for me. This is why he says at the end of each letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This means that we need to hear the encouragements and the challenges that are given, and we need to ask ourselves if those truths apply to our church and to our lives for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. So last week, we looked at the church of Ephesus, and we looked how Ephesus was doing all the right stuff. They were doing all the right things, but they were wrong on the inside. They had lost their love. And we talked about how God promised to remove them as a church if they did not return to their love, to their first love, whether it be their love for Christ, their love for one another, and their love for the lost. And we examined our own lives to see if we lost our first love for the Lord. And I encourage you, if you were not here, to listen to the podcast, to watch the video, because far too many of us Christians, we have lost that love for the Lord, and we don't even know it, and we need to be snapped out of it for his glory. Now today... We're going to look at what happens when you don't lose your first love, when you stay committed to Christ. It's not praise and glory. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We are going to look at the church of Smyrna. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to call it two things. I'm going to call it Smyrna, and I'm going to call it Smyrna. It can be pronounced both ways. I prefer Smyrna because it sounds less weird. But know that when I use both terms today, in and out, because I can just never keep to one way to say it, you won't get confused. We are going to look at Smyrna, which is only one of two churches that never received any bad marks. They only received encouragement because they were going through some really hard times. And I pray this letter will be an encouragement to us. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Now before we dive into this letter, I want to take a look at the setting. Smyrna was located in modern day Turkey. 
just as like the other six churches. In fact, that today, the city is still there, and if memory serves, it's the only one that's remaining of the seven churches. It's called Izmir today. You can see, here's a picture of it now. It's a beautiful city. Obviously, it looked just a touch different back when this was written. Now, whatever it did look like, because we obviously didn't have photographs back day, it is recorded as one of the most beautiful cities in all of Asia. It had a huge amphitheater, had, had a street that was called the Street of Gold that led to the Temple of Zeus, had several other temples of other gods that were worshipped. And like all major cities in that time, the worship of the gods was a big deal. It was a critical part of society and life. And not just worship of the gods, but also worship of the emperor. Because at some point, the Roman emperor decided that he should be worshipped as well. Because why not, right? But unlike the other gods, worshipping the emperor was non-negotiable. In fact, it was considered a capital offense to refuse to offer worship to the emperor. So the next time we use the term dictator here in America, let's remember this. And here's how it worked. Once a year, you would have to go to this special place that the Romans set up. And what people would come and what they would do is they would take this little pinch of incense and they would throw it in the fire and they would say, Caesar Kyrios, which means Caesar is Lord. And the man who would work there, he would write it down. He would give them a receipt that they had pledged their allegiance to Caesar. Now, obviously, this is not something that Christians would do. And because they were not willing to do it, they faced persecution, tribulation. Now, the interesting thing here is when King Jesus says, I see your tribulation, he doesn't mention the Romans. He mentions the Jews. And I'll briefly explain why. In ancient times, people's religion, their God was often tied to their land. Their land was considered holy. So their religious commitment was tied to their heritage, their places of worship, their land, their monuments. So what you would do is if you conquered a people group, what you would do is you would take the people out of their land and you'd bring them to your land. And it would make it much easier to break their commitment to their God. Except for the Jews. No matter how far you move the Jews away from their land, they were still committed to their God, to their religious traditions. They were a stubborn people. They're so stubborn at some point, it was like, the Romans were like, fine, we don't need this headache. And so they were not required to worship these gods or make this tribute to Caesar. And what happened is for a while, when Christianity was first born, it was seen as a subset of the Jews. So they didn't face persecution. But what happened is the Christian, Christianity began to grow and became more numerous. And then and the Christians started doing something that the, the old-time Jewish culture did not like. They started inviting Gentiles, which are anybody who's not a Jew, to become a Christian. And this became very upsetting to many Jews because they tied their religion also to their heritage, to their people group. And so the easiest way the Jews found to cause problems for the Christians when this just got to be too much is they would tip off the Romans and say, look, these Christians, they're not really Jews. They're not Jewish people. They're just pretending. And so the Romans were like, well, if they're not Jewish, then they need to be offering Worship and incense to the emperor. 
And so the heavy hand of Rome came down on Christians. But it was brought on by the Jews at that time. And this is what you see early on. If you read in the book of Acts, which we'll preach more from in the future, early persecution wasn't started by the Romans. It was started by the Jews. A little historical fact, some of these truths is what Germany used, the Nazis used when they went to World War II to inflame hatred against the Jews, which obviously was wrong, but they pointed back to this. Now, an interesting thing that he says is these are people who say they are Jewish, but they are not. They're a synagogue of Satan. And what he's referring there to, and you have to read it on your own time, in Romans 2, Paul talks about how people claim to be Jewish, following God because of their heritage, because of their lineage. And he said, no, 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 no. If you want to be Jewish, if you want to be committed to the Lord God of the Old Testament, then you need to be acknowledging Christ as Lord. That's what makes you connected to the gods of Abraham and Jacob and Israel in the New Testament that you follow. But these Jews did not recognize Christ. And so they saw these Christians as heresy, especially when they started bringing in white people, Greeks. And so they were used by Satan. That's why he refers to them as a synagogue, a church of Satan. So for these reasons, the Christians were facing tribulation in their lives. And this is why King Jesus mentions their poverty. And the, the Greek word for poverty means, man, you're like, you're not, you're not like poor. Remember I said this before, you're not poor, you're poor. You, you can't even afford to have the extra O in poor. That's how poor you are. Like they got nothing left. It's all been taken from them because of their faith. So these Christians were having a rough go of it, far more than you or I could probably ever imagine. And King Jesus says, look, I see you. I see your suffering. I see your poverty. Because I want you to know something. It may not look like it, but you're really rich. Things are much better than they seem. And why are they better than they seem? Because of the one who's writing the letter. In Revelation 2.8, he says, These are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Remember, this is the most important part of studying Revelation, to see Jesus Christ as the coming king in all of his glory, in all of his fullness, because it changes how you see your circumstances now. It changes your fear, your anxiety, all of it. Because you start to see your present circumstances through the lens of the future. And it encourages you, challenges you. King Jesus says, look, I had the first word. And he goes, I will have the last word. He says, I have overcome all of this suffering. John 16, when he's speaking to his disciples and they're worried about him leaving, he says, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He is the one who overcame tribulation. He's the one who overcame persecution. He is the one who overcame death. And so Jesus is saying, things are better than they seem because there's nothing that I cannot overcome. Is that not comforting this morning, church? Amen. Knowing that King Jesus is going to have the last word when all is said and done. There is nothing he cannot overcome. 
the things that you have weighing on you, the things that are bearing you, the things that are stressing you, they are nothing in comparison to King Jesus. There is nothing he cannot overcome. Amen? Amen. Nothing. Nada. Zilch. Zero. Nothing he cannot overcome. He had the first word, and he will have the last. Jesus says they are be- things are better than they seem because of who I am and because of what is to come. You go on to verse 10. In verse 10, he says at the end of verse 10, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Back in those times when they competed in games like they had the Olympics and other games, there, there, there wasn't a medal that they got like you would today. They got this crown. Woven of gold and leaves, and they would put it on their head. And so he's, he's using this illustration. That he says when the, when the fight is fought and when the race is done at the finish line, this symbolic wreath, wreath will be put on your head. No more pain, no more slander, no more shame or tears or depression, no more frustration, no more defeat or discouragement. And this is why it's so important that we come together on Sunday mornings because we need things in our lives that are bigger than our problems to bring us hope. We need to be reminded that God has the first and the last. We need to be reminded that victory is coming in his name. 1 Peter 5.10, Peter says this. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will, will himself restore Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So those who come through this persecution, still committed to God, have eternal life to look forward to by his grace and his mercy. This is why he says later in verse 11, he'll say, the one who conquers, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Christianity teaches that every one of us will die. We had two funerals this past week here in the church that reminded me of that truth, that we all will die, every one of us. It's just a matter of when. And those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will face a second death that is separation from Christ for all of eternity. And we're going to look at that much more depth. I know there's a lot of questions about that, and we will hit that fully in all the questions once we cover Revelation chapter 20. But this is why Jesus can say, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because all the things that can hurt you, none of them can touch what really matters. They'll hurt. They'll cause pain, cause suffering, but they can't touch what really matters. And how would it change our life? How would it change our boldness? How would it remove our fear? If we lived knowing that anything on this earth cannot touch what really matters. Oh, praise God for his promises. King Jesus says, this is all yours if you remain faithful. Now, If you're not careful, this can be taken like you're about to earn your salvation, like, you know, get enough gold stars of faithfulness and you get ushered in. 
But we know that's not the case because we read through all of Scripture that salvation comes through grace, by grace, through our faith. That Jesus did the work, not us. Now the point that is being made here is that if someone really has their faith in Christ, they're not pretending, they're not faking it, they will not deny Jesus. He talks about this in Luke 12. He says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of heaven. And the one who denies me before men, the Son of Man will also deny before the angels of heaven. This means that we stand for Christ, that we trust him no matter what the cost, no matter what the threat There's a, a bishop named Polycarp. And he was actually the bishop in Smyrna. He was actually taught by the Apostle John. And about 60 years after this was written, the Romans wanted him to renounce his faith. Or he was to be burned at the stake. I can be honest, that'd be tough to know the pain and the suffering that would come from being burned alive. And yet somehow in his strength and in the spirit, this was his answer. He says, 80 and six years have I served him and he has never did me any harm. How then can I blaspheme his name and my savior, my king? He says, you all threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while it is quenched, but you're all ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Faithfulness is the courage to be obedient to God once again, no matter what the cost. You saw this when we studied the first seven chapters of Acts where the Romans, they beat and jailed Peter and the apostles for preaching the gospel and they said, y'all need to stop. And their reply was that we must obey God rather than men. The attitude, do your worst, or we're going to keep coming. They weren't, they weren't rude, they weren't mean, they just said we're going to obey God rather than men. That's what it means to stay faithful. Do your worst. It reminds me like the, the Marvel kick lately, the first Captain America movie before Captain America got big and strong and stuff and he was, he was just weak and short and thin and some guys were harassing a girl at a movie theater and he was like, hey, knock it off. So they took him outside and they just started beating the crowd out of him. And he just kept bidding back up as he's wobbled and they're like, haven't you had enough? And he's like, I can do this all day. It's that same attitude that a Christian has. They may get beat down, they may get knocked down, they may get hurt, but they get back up and they say, I can do this all day. I can preach the gospel all day. I'm gonna keep going because I know what's coming at the end. I know who has the last word. Are you staying faithful this morning? So Jesus says, listen, don't be afraid. Stay faithful. Now why does he say don't be afraid? He says, because more suffering is coming. More suffering's coming. Verse, verse 10, he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. You're going to be thrown into prison. You're going to be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. 
and be faithful unto death. It means some of you ain't going to make it out of this alive. People like Polycarp. Now, some people have questions what this 10 days means. Because they're like, hey, I can hang in for 10 days. We're not sure. It could be a literal 10 days, but you also see in the Bible in a couple other places, I think Daniel, Acts, maybe Genesis, where 10 days, uh, I can't recall it, where 10 days uh, meant a certain period of time. So either way, I, I, I don't know. But it doesn't matter whether it interpreted literally or figuratively. The point is that your suffering is short in comparison to the eternal blessings that would be for those who remain faithful. And I'd like to say this blows away this garbage, trash theology that you see preached today that God wants you happy, he got you wealthy, and he wants you healthy. I would like to see these false teachers take this load of stuff and go preach this to Polycarp as he was burning at the stake. Nope. God of the Bible is like, nope, you've suffered, and you're going to suffer some more. And God promises to save them from none of it, not an ounce of it. We have to remember, as Christians, if the God of the universe would send his son to die on the cross, and he would not spare him from any pain or suffering, what makes him us think that he's going to spare us? Now, it doesn't mean God's not callous, that God's callous, or that he doesn't care. God just sees the bigger picture. Just like a parent who is, is not as upset with a child who scrapes their knee. Why? Because the parent knows the pain will subside, that it's short-lived, that things will be healed. So does God. He saves some, but some of us, he'll call us into suffering for his name. Now, the funny thing is, or ironic thing, a thing I wouldn't think of, but I've experienced it now, so I get it, is like the response to suffering by the New Testament believers was joy, like happiness. Acts 5, we, we talked about this a minute. We, we see them getting beaten for proclaiming Jesus, and this is how they, rep- they responded. It says, then they left the presence of the council who beat them and jailed them, rejoicing, rejoicing to have joy, to celebrate that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Why? Because they got busted for doing the right thing. They understood that they were sinners saved by grace, and for them to be tied to the name of Christ was an act of joy. In fact, I think every time that we face persecution, even though it's hard and it stinks and we don't like it, our response is to be Thank you, God, that I am counted worthy to suffer for your name, that people don't like me because of you. And let me be clear. When I say this, I'm talking about when we suffer for his name, not because of our cruddy personality. All right? Because some Christians, especially through this pandemic, became so stinking obnoxious. And they're like, I'm persecuted for Jesus. I'm persecuted. No, you're persecuted because you're a jerk. Right? Or you're persecuted because you're one of those weird Christians where someone would be like, oh, it's a beautiful sunset. And you're like, the Bible says not to love the things of the world or anything in it, right? Like we love to say, oh, I'm persecuted for Jesus. No, you're persecuted for your personality. We have to be very clear, there is a difference. Those who persecuted for Jesus are 
faithful to his name. They're not afraid to preach his word. They're strong and they're bold. They don't stray away from the truth, but they're also gentle and loving and patient. And you can be those things and still not back down from the word of God. Just like they said, we talked about a few minutes ago, where they said, we must obey God rather than man. We did, they did not hit, hit, hurl insults, you dictator, stupid emperor. You know, they didn't call him names. They say, I need to obey God rather than I obey men. But when we are actually persecuted for his name and not our personality, there's joy. And not only joy, it builds the gospel. We don't always see it build the gospel, but it does. I mean, look at the persecution here. You had Nero, who would, was a complete tyrant with the church. But then it actually even got way, way worse under Diocletian. Building the Roman Empire, let's get done with Christianity, it's going to ruin it. But if you, if you go to Rome today and visit old Rome, what do you find? Here's a picture of some of the ruins from Smyrna. This is what you find. You find wreckage, you find remains. A column here, a viaduct there. But the church of Christ? The church of Christ fills the world. It is all over the world. It is alive and it is well. That's why Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. The church has been grown not by shedding, by shedding its own blood, not by shedding the blood of others, not by enduring, by enduring outrage and not inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. These were the observations of the fourth century priest Jerome. Because I think what works is when people see us persecuted and they see us hold our heads high, not with a hate in our hearts, but with love for others, even love for our enemies, it, no matter what they say, it has to make them think, like, why would they endure this? Why would they go through this? Because hypocrites will run. Hypocrites will avoid pain. They'll avoid suffering. Only a Christian will stand in the fire and take it and say, Christ loves you. And I think opposite brings op opposition brings opportunity. I've had a couple of you share this with me. I've had it happen where people will make fun of you. They'll ridicule you. And then when something goes wrong, if you've honored Christ and how you've reacted, they'll come up and be like, hey man, can you pray for me? When they see us stand firm in the faith, when they see us proclaim Jesus no matter what, when we don't back down, when we love our enemies, it makes an impact. It brings glory to God whether they respond to it or not. So what does this mean for us practically as Christians in America? Because we do not know persecution like this. We were claiming we knew persecution like this during the pandemic. We do not know persecution like this. And I don't think we were persecuted in the pandemic either because though our seating was limited and we had to wear masks, so did mosques, so did every other place in this state. We actually even had it a little bit easier. And I say that because when we claim persecution over the wrong things and little things, it takes away the weight of our message. We'll know persecution when we're preaching the message and someone walks through this door, drags me out, and shoots me, and nobody goes after them because the government's Muslim, like in Nigeria. 
We'll know persecution when you're in your home and, and, and someone comes in and, and, and drags away your sister and you don't know if she's alive or dead because you haven't seen her again like they do in India. We'll know persecution when we're like a, a, a man in prison in North Korea, North Korea who has to be forcibly woken up because they passed out from beatings. And why do you wake them up? So you can beat them again. We'll know persecution when we're like a, a church in Sri Lanka where the kids are going to have a meal after service and most of them end up dead because a bomb goes off. In this last year, nearly 6,000 Christians have been killed for their faith. Over 5,000 churches and other Christian buildings have been attacked and over 4,800 believers have been arrested and imprisoned. That's persecution. Now, us American Christians, we may miss what we consider the old days where we had a monopoly on, on, on public conversation, but we're nowhere close to understanding this kind of tribulation. However, if you are living out your faith, if you are actively living for Christ in your life, if you're not trying to hide him when you walk out of this church, you are going to feel the pressure. At the end of the day, actually, that's what the definition of persecution is, is it's pressure. I just don't like using the term persecution because I feel like us as American Christians, we need to toughen up a little bit. That when we hit this word persecution, we get a woe is me attitude. So I, I don't love using it, but by definition, persecution equals pressure. If you are really living out your faith, if you're really trying to pray and reach people, you're going to feel pressure. It might be from your unsaved family. It might be from your friends. It might be from your coworkers, your neighbors, your teachers, society in general. And it feels like there's a lot of that sometimes right now. And you should expect it. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, the devil knows when you're worth attacking. The devil knows. A robber, a thief is not going to go up and rob somebody who looks poor and has nothing. See someone homeless, they're not going to go rob them. They're going to go find someone who just left the ATM. The devil knows when you're worth attacking. The devil knows when you're valuable. And I think a good question for every one of us who put our faith in Christ here to, to ask ourselves is, am I living a life that would cause the enemy to take notice? Because I don't believe the devil's going to mess with you when you're not valuable. When, you are, when you're not thinking about the gospel, when you're going from A to B, just living your own life, doing things that make you feel better, what, what does he need to do? You're doing the work for him. Every one of us should ask ourselves, am I living a life that would cause the enemy to notice? Now, I will say, if you can't think of anywhere, it doesn't necessarily mean you aren't spreading the gospel. If you're not feeling the heat of the enemy, I don't want to say that. I don't want to go that far. But it might. 
It might mean you aren't praying for the lost. It might mean that when you walk out your front door, you're not saying, God, use me today. Help me the eyes open. Help my ears open. Help me to speak into people's lives. When you're at the water cooler or a neighborhood or wherever you go, if you're at school, whatever you may do, that you're not just trying to rely on the Holy Spirit for when he wants you to speak into someone's life or he wants you to share Jesus or invite someone to church. It, it might mean you're just living for yourself. And so it's my prayer that all of us, we'd walk away to say, Lord, I pray that I live a life that's worth making the enemy notice, that I will get their attention. Now, the first time someone told me I should pray this when I was young, I was like, I do not want the enemy's attention. I don't want, I, they're going to do bad things. I was like a teenager. My youth pastor said this. I'm like, you start, and you know, when you're a kid, you start thinking like, you know, devil's going to appear in your room with pitchforks and stuff like that. But when that response comes in, it's fear. It's fear. We are told not to live by fear, but by faith in the Lord. And I'll tell you right now, when you breathe your last day, your last your breath, when you go to glory, you will be so glad that all the times you chose to take on the pressure to get noticed by the enemy because you know it will be meant that you were fulfilling your call to spread the gospel and to make disciples and wherever you are at. So I pray, one, you'll say, Lord, help me to live a life that's worth feeling the heat, that's worth the pressure. But I also pray, say, you'd pray this, Lord, help me, prepare me for that pressure, that I don't lash back out, that I love my enemies, that I stand strong. I don't give an inch, but I do it in love and patience and grace. That whether, as we read in Philippians, whether by life or by death, I will bring glory to your name. Amen, church? Amen. Let me pray for you.